renowned craftsman and enthusiast. Brian Flintoff shares his memories and thoughts around the use and proliferation of Taonga Kuoro. He also briefly shares with James Webster the story of coming up with the name Haumanu. Kia tonu mai rā. Kiorakote, Teratu o ke kafia kai kafia moana a o mokoroa ye no raira ipoku kraini pa me ki te karaua kutaku mama ko ruby rato uirata me taku papa ko Raymond James Thornton Webster he wai ye tu aki nei ki a mihia tu ki a koe ite nei wa nei wa noi fakai te me haramai ki te kōrero hia, nā kōrero e pāna te aupuoro i tō hairinga, i te ōranga tanga kei wainganu i tēnei o nā aupuoro ki te taha hirini, a richer mā. You know, e rō nā tangata ko wehi atu ki te pō, ko wehi atu ki te tū o te arai. Hei ake a mihi atu ki a rātou, ko tō rātou painga, tō rātou ōranga i te wā e ora ai. E te mea hoki mā tātou nga huri whakatupuranga e rirere haere i rungi te mato te whenua. E ki te kōruro e pāna. Tēnei kaupapa nunui, tēnei kaupapa manua, e pāna nga taonga pūro, nga reo nga atua, nga reo te tangata, nga reo nga tūpuna. E ki a rere ai i tēnei rangi, so i tēnei te mihi ki a koe, Brian, E nau anō titahi o nga pūkenga, e mau ana tēnei o nga kōrero, e kaihanga hoki te hanga taonga pūoro. So koe nei nō i te mihi atu ki a koe mō tō huarahi, e tō hairinga e runga i tēnei kaupapa ngā taonga pūoro. Kia e kia mai nga atua e nga tūpuna, kia tātou nga tangata. So koe nei, tēnei te mihi. Tēnei te mihi, tēnei te mihi. Kia ora rā. Kia ora, James. Ko Brian Flintoff ahau. He ngāti pakeha, engari he waka whetu tēnā waka. I grew up in Muruheku and my heart is still there. At present, I'm living in Nelson, in Whakatū, where the weather's a lot better. When I came to Nelson, uh, I was teaching myself bone carving, and it just so happened that uh, we were associated with the Marae planning movement because there was no Marae here at that time, and uh, they were having a meeting with elders to get the history and the stories to be confident to start with uh, making the Marae. And because I was a school teacher, I had access to these great new machines, tape recorders. So I was asked to um, bring along a tape recorder to the hui that was held over at Tiafina in Maraika. And there I met another teacher who was at a different school, and he was there for the same reason. So <laughs> we found out during the evening that uh, we both had similar interests 
and that other person was Richard Nunn's. I was wanting to do more things with my bone carving and had started making kawawa and Richard wasn't a maker of any sorts and he'd been teaching himself how to play. And so we got together and started making some progress with two of us coming from different directions. We had complementary schools. Ivan Erhol, whose family lived down here, was down here and heard about it. Then when they had the first wānanga... What sort of year was that? Can you sort of give us a timeline? Uh, mm, no, but I think it's in the book because we held it up at Te Araroa and it was when the original uh, Hene Rupe house was still there. So... We're 80s? Very early 80s. Mm. So we went up there... And, of course, uh, we were quite alarmed as we drove down the hill into Tiaroa. Ivan said, uh, it was discussion with the elders to have it. They'd said that, um, well, there's lots of people around here play kawawa. <laughs> and he was quite surprised, so we got the names and went to visit them and they were playing all sorts of European wind instruments like saxophone and... <laughs> Yeah, all those different instruments, but they just called them kawawa. Oh, yeah. He also said the only stipulation they had was that there were no Pākehā coming in. <laughs> By the stage, we were just driving into the village. Oh, yeah. uh, so that wasn't a great setup. But it so happened that that weekend was a very wet weekend around the country and some people couldn't come, but, however, to Papa sent along a box of instruments and so we had these as examples of old instruments to show people too and one of those was a human bone kawawa. Each night because it was important in the way Hirini rang and things to include the elders and so the elders and the young people, everybody that could be there was there in, the, in Hinerupe and Richard was demonstrating the instruments and the two of them were talking about the uh, variety and, and the meaning and, of course, Hirini by this stage was bringing in Papa for the instruments and the, sto- the wonderful uh, mythology that went with them to explain their existence. And then he picked up the bo- human bone one and mentioned that it was human bone and being in the background, I was in the crowd with the kuya and the two kuya that were there near me, they just suddenly bristled and they were looking very angry that he would do that. And then Richard started playing the instruments and after a little while, there was nudging each other. Then next verse, they were singing along with it. That's the sort of thing that happened with the tohu that came that really showed us that we were on the right path. And all along, tohu have been very important in the creation of the whole Homanu movement. That reassurance uh, that the elders, even those who's moved on up to the stars, were with us. So, yeah, it sort of flowed from there. So was that the first time who you'd first met Hidini or? Yes, it was the first time. I didn't know him at all. Mm. And from that, a wee while later, I guess after he checked us out, <laughs> but mm. uh, he contacted us and explained how he'd had this dream of reviving Tonga Poro, mm-hmm. but didn't know where to start. And so he said to us, would you two like to come along with me and see if we can get something started? So that was how we got involved, yeah. So where to from there? Like, So where did you take that conversation? Well, here he put word out really in the East Coast region to Marai that if they wanted to do so, he would facilitate Wananga. The call had to come from Marae first and then we would come in for our weekends off (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and get very busy. 
But yeah, I think that was a very important step that it was Marae based and everybody was involved and especially the elders and it just grew and grew from there and we were very busy and it wasn't long, of course, before others like yourself, James, and Chucky and all sorts of people, Bernard and... Oh, Rangiria. Yeah, Rangiria, yeah. and uh, she was very, very involved in that and helpful. So then it was that if Hedini was available, he could call on others. If Richard and I weren't available or anybody, you know, so it became one of the wonderful things where you had a pool of people to call on and you could cover a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. Mm, and so a lot of progress was made that way. Yeah, because uh, I do remember, because I've been involved with Tonga Pūro for quite a while now, but I do remember the first time I met you and I was first uh, getting involved in, yeah, Wānanga Māori and I was into Mahi Toi and I was invited to a Wānanga down at Ōmakamarai, down in um, Blenheim. I think it was like 87 or 88 or something like that, 1987, 88. So that makes me sound pretty old. <laughs> ah, nah. Yeah, and that was my first introduction to hearing Tonga Pūro because um, yourself was there, uh, Richard, Hedini, uh, Ranginui Keith, um, yeah, quite a lot of people. I even remember, yeah, Clem Malish. <laughs> yeah, and I remember even meeting um, Afina Tamarapa there and um, Shane Sydney. They were just getting into the, um, and even Shane James possibly. Anyway, they were just getting into the sort of museum scene as well. But yeah. anyways, so that was my first introduction to Tonga Pūro and I remember hearing the sound of Pūro and it just, sent shivers up my spine and I thought, far, you know, so I sort of gravitated to you guys and another fellow called Dante Bonica who was doing the tuki, tuki mahi. So those are the two places I gravitated to and pretty much been involved in it ever since then. So, you know, when you talk about going to different marae and I think that was run by Ngāpuna Waihanga at the time, the Māori artists and writers sort of um, fraternity or rōpū that were pretty active in um, activating contemporary Māori arts and toi Māori throughout Aotearoa at the time. That was critical in broadcasting what had happened at first in the East Coast to the country and the support was enormous and it also came with Dame Te Atha, who became our figurehead, her support, things like that, you know, just helped it, mm-hmm. helped everybody be supportive of it. Mm. So you sort of talk about Homanu as a as a movement and as a as a vessel or a waka to carry the kaupapa. And I remember talking to you on a couple of occasions and um, you know, you mentioning uh, where the name Homanu come from. So I was just wondering whether you could sort of share that. Right, well, it started with a butcher that used to come around in the country area where we lived out uh, between Nelson and Motueka. So I was getting him to supply me with bones for my bone carving and also for some of the instruments too, the sheep bones and deer bone, deer leg bones. And he had a property up on the top of the Takaka Hill where he used to fatten some animals before he could get the bones big enough for me, you know, that was his main aim, I'm sure. He said we could use the batch that was up there if we wanted to get together as a group. And so for the first one, uh, there was just myself and Clem Mellish and Hedini and a few bottles to keep us talking through the night. Yeah, and in those days, Black Mac was just a... The beer you had to have and uh, red wine to just, you know, help wash it down every now and then. <laughs> I thought, raised the subject there and said, you know, we're sort of getting known. Do we need to have a, a name to identify what we're doing? We used it several times, that property several times later because it is a very special situation that I'm sure 
was really a wahitapu in the earlier days because it's called, on the maps, it's called Marble Acre and it's a, about an acre of a marble in the middle of the bush. The marble is split into several bits, but it's all sculptured and just amazing-looking rock. And, of course, the audio up there, because it's in a hollow, all the hills around the marble for recording when conditions are, are right. It's absolute magic. But, yeah, I thought, OK, I'll start the ball rolling. And I thought about, because the birds are so important and they're the real tangata whenua of the country, aren't they? So I thought the song of the birds, and so I came up with Ho Manu. The Breath of the Birds, the Song of the Birds, I thought I was doing, and Hidden he latched onto that, and with a funny look on his face that he indicated that there was something more happening, he agreed to that, and it was only when I got home that I thought, oh, I'd better check this word out. Of course, homano was appropriate for that usage, but it also meant revival, and there's another tohu, and it was so meaningful to me coming into the world and finding a whole new way of looking at the world around me. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then I think I went back to Waiheke and uh, where I was living at the time and started going over to the museum in Auckland and started looking through the cases and trying to figure out, oh, how do I make this and make that? And I had nobody to sort of guide me as such. And then I remember a few years later, I got invited to another Homanu Wananga that uh, teaches training college up in Epsom there. Mm. And that was, I think, was the last of a series of wānangis we're doing. And that one was mainly on internal structures and binding of instruments, from yeah. what I remember. And that's, that's also right. where I met Warren Warbrick. And mm. uh, we've been good mates ever since then. And um, definitely started out when my hair was black. <laughs> now it's all grey, but that's all good. Yeah, because I know that you guys ran heaps and copious amounts of wānang all over the country. Richard and um, Brian, uh, you were the main sort of construction person, eh, for making instruments and things. So, yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that came to be and how that worked with you and your crew, being that you are, you know, master sort of craftsman. (laughs) Well, I still don't call myself a master carver or anything, but uh, at the start I was just finding my way. But it all comes back to what you were saying for yourself. You didn't have the knowledge of how to do it and uh, I felt a bit the same way when I got so far and was wanting to make puturino and they've got hidden secrets inside and because they're bound together, they are secrets. I don't know how I found out that the British Museum had a large collection of puturino, but Julia's brother helped us to make a trip across to England and... uh, In fact, we went with him and had a private holiday as well because he was involved in the the air show. He worked with Air New Zealand. When I got into the British Museum, I found that they had about as many puturino in their collection as we've got in all the museums back in Aotearoa. So it was really helpful in looking at them. But when I got home, Hirani said to me, and this is perhaps the greatest lesson that he ever, ever imparted. He said to me, what's the most important thing you learned? I said, well, they were all different. And then he said to me, what did I tell you before you went? I had to think about that and it was sometime later before I twigged because he told me lots of things anyhow. Which was it that he was referring to? And then I recalled and I had to ring them up sheepishly and say um, that they're all people. He just said, what did you expect then? What a bloody waste of money. And that aspect that they're all people, that they're all different. So you were there making them from what you could envisage and 
I didn't do any more research after that. I just relied. I looked at other old instruments when I could, but uh, I didn't research them like I had in the museum because that aspect that they're all people, I think, is something we've got in, in today's world that we've got to hang on to. Having made Tonga Pool for so many years, where does all that sit with you now? It's interesting because I'm always learning and changing things. One of the interesting things that's happening with me at present is that Ariana Tiko and her friends were doing work on birthing practices. They went round the old people of the South collecting ori-ori and stories of birthing and as much as they could while they could, and they were composing new ones with the idea of creating a kiti that they could put online to help young mothers who wanted to follow the old ways. And, of course, the instrument that is really associated with, with that is the pumotumoto. Now, I've never even seen an old one of these. Collections around the world, we've never found any there. And that poses a puzzle because their use was to play over the womb to create, help create a, a child and then uh, to help the child grow. But as it was played, uh, the s- stories, the Purako were chanted and the concept was that they would be embedded in the child's memory. And then, of course, it was played over the child when it was born until the fontanelle, the pumotomoto, closed over. Now, something that was that important, how come we didn't, couldn't see any? Mm. Listening to some of the stories I'd heard of when the instruments were fading into non-existence, there were several families who would put their taonga poro into the swamp. Then I thought, well, perhaps this one was so special that rather than any possibility of it being profaned, they did that because Pumotomoto was not even, the, the word isn't in the dictionary. And he was in Lake Waikara Moana and two of the old people there came up to him and said, after he'd gone to his instruments, what about the Pumotomoto? And his ears pricked up because he knew that word uh, from his, upbringing with his grandparents in the Tuhoi bush. So he um, asked them to tell him more about it. And they said, well, they didn't have much to say, but what he brought back was it's about half a metre long with a finger hole about four inches up from the bottom and played over a notch in the top. That was all we had to go on, except for the co-puppet of how it was played, as I mentioned before, and why it was played. Mm-hmm. So the only flute I knew of in the world that was, well, there were two, uh, a kuena and a Japanese shakuhachi. Uh, I happened to have a Japanese shakuhachi and so I thought, well, it's played over a notch in the top and maybe I'll make it like that because really it's just ground flat on two different angles to create the notch. But the Japanese shakuhachi, the type of music that that mouthpiece can create is the most amazing in the world. It can copy just about any flute in the world as well as doing lots of other things played by an expert. I could never get more than a squeak out of it and I'm the opposite of an expert when it comes to playing but it was very frustrating making these instruments and not being able to get a sound. I'd have to call Richard in and hey see if this one will work. So lately when this happened with Ariana, I thought, well, other people had found them difficult to play too. I wasn't the only one, but they need something to get them started. So I've been working on making a mouthpiece (coughs) that almost applies to the same idea but makes the same sound. Uh, and that was the what, the verification we got from those old people who told us about it in Waikari Moana was that's the sound we remember. 
and it is a quite a distinctive sound. So I had these things in my mind and was have been working on creating something and I thought maybe it's the, the growth on the chin that prevents me from getting a sound and I'm not sealing that enough to get the sound. So here's the, the shakuhachi mouthpiece. So how, how do I get that best? best at, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there it is. Yeah, and you can see the notch on the top. So I thought if I fill in this bit and just have a hole in there, like I've done here, so you can see what I'm doing, and the hole goes into the bore on an angle. Uh, and I was delighted to find that that gave the same sound as the shakuhachi. It was very easy to play, and even for me, I, this was the most delightful But I could just put it up to my nose and go... And that really is a, a lot of body in that sound, and it's special that not many flutes that I've tried can get. So, you know, things develop. It's still really, it's, it's almost like the mouthpiece of the shakuhachi, except I've filled in part of the mouthpiece that on this one just angles down. So, yeah, th that's the, a really exciting thing. But there's all, you're always looking at even the simple instrument, the porotiti. I was saying goodbye to Richard. And I thought, now I'm going to be playing this for a long time. So I added for the, to hold the fingers a couple of little blocks of wood mm -hmm. that I could stop my fingers are sort of get worn out doing other things. Uh, but I could play, just make, you know, make that long playing. And since then I've had people, oh, yeah, that's just what I need. You know, we, we use it for putting the children to sleep and it hurts, you know. And so, yeah, also in the position of being one of the revivalists, keeping to tradition is important. We've got to change some things, but you've got to work out which are the immutable and which are the changeable aspects. Yep. So you've got to look at the stories that created it and the uses it traditionally had. Some people take these changes far too far for me to be comfortable with. And I think that's, you know, one of these things that is very important in the pathway ahead mm -hmm. that we analyse and decide, you know, which we can do. And perhaps this is a personal thing too. Uh, I don't know. But for me, that's how I feel that I want to keep them making the sounds of old. And, of course, that's quite hard because the songs of old were microtonal. Somebody commented, I saw it in a book, that it was like they had as many notes in their whole spectrum of, of sound, of music, uh, and they condensed them down so that the intervals between them were so tiny that it sounded almost like chanting. Mm -hmm. And the Europeans listening to that found it very boring and commented so. Uh, but the subtleties that can be woven into that and that can be listened to are important. And I know the Tanga Poro were the kinaki to the song, to the waiata, or whatever was being used. So they didn't only have to just play the melody. Yeah, that's right. They could add to that, do things that added to that. Uh, and that's how we tend to see them being used mostly today. But Mrs. Winera of Ngāti Tōa, uh, was the last woman that we know of that recorded. And when you listen to her playing, she sings through the kawao. Mm -hmm. And you can hear the consonants. So that if you happen to know that song or happen to know what it might be, you can follow. It's like, you know, singing through the instrument. And there is wonderful, one especially wonderful story from up north at Pio Pio, where a young chief, who was an expert player, went down to the coast and fell in love with the puhi there, but he was considered by the iwi there, you know, stepping too far. 
and so he was they said they were going to put him to death so he asked if he could play his porutu before he died and he played it for four hours with all sorts of different songs and one of the early songs was singing a message to his sweetheart saying Heidi kia piu piu Heidi kia piu piu so when she could she slipped out the back and started heading off into the the trek to take her up to piu piu from the coast and then he continued and put them all to sleep with a special one I don't think it was because it was boring but he must have had such skills and uh, that we know now spell on them eh? <laughs> yeah then when they went to sleep he ran out the the door and jumped over to the cliff and his brothers were waiting down below in the waka and so they did get to peel pure I believe oh, yeah. uh, so that was one way but her way of singing the words to them was so there are so many different ways to play the instruments uh, but these old ones you can actually hear it on Mrs. Winera's re- recording, and she sings some modern songs, uh, of course, we know, and you can follow the words. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, these are techniques that I think people need to know about, yeah, don't they? Yeah. You know, they were all created somewhere at some stage, so why have we stopped creating more Māori instruments, you know what I yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. Is it finite that this is the pool of Māori instruments? It's all in the living, really, eh? You know, you've just got to have enough gumption to actually challenge the cultural boundaries to sort of push them further. And I find that, interestingly, when you do that, instruments just change their voice. They'll do some things. I doubt that I've ever created one that'll do all the types of things that I hope it'll do, but some will do one and some will do another. And, of course, you look back on people, What do you expect? Mm. (laughs) We're all different. That's right. We put out a book called Tonga Puro, Singing Treasures, from conversations with you in the past. You mentioned how that came about as well, because it's the only book that I know of that is, um, you know, as in-depth as it is, and, you know, that's based on your... Time in Haumanu with Hidani and Richard and Clem and just your journey in Tongapuro, of course, because I know you're an you're ex-teacher and stuff like that as well, so you got all those skills. So maybe you could just give us a little background into how that book Tongapuro or Singing Treasures came about. The concept had started quite a few years before we got round to getting to the, that stage because we realised that we were doing uh, Wananga and feeding people so much information, it was an overload. And we had, there was nothing around as a backup for them to go back to and and get it. So we wanted to put everything together in a way that people who would have a resource. And so, yeah, we decided, well, Hedony was the one that was going to do it. But first of all, we had to realise what the whakapapa was of all the instruments and, and include, you know, those Puraco uh, stories to justify why they were there and give them a whakapapa. And there were some bits that were quite tricky. In fact, one of the funny bits was that when Hedini was quite sick, we went up to see him. I went up with a group of, Clem Mellish and, and, and others, and when he opened the door, he just looked and saw me there because I'd written him a, a letter, uh, which is perhaps why I don't speak to Raoul because he admitted to me later when I wrote letters in Māori, he would have to get his wife Jan, who was a first language English <laughs> but a Māori speaker, you know, he only had Māori in his vocabulary till he was a high school student. And he, he just looked at me because I'd put together, said, what about this way of explaining the last bit of fock popper that was missing on the instruments? And uh, I'd put that in my letter and he uh, just looked over at me and said, 
I knew that, I knew that. And of course, Hirini would never greet her group like that unless it was something important before he said anything, you know, that came out. And I just said, I know you knew it, you told it to me. But it was one of those pieces of a jigsaw you just had to turn around and look at from the right perspective and it fitted perfectly into place. I don't know why, when he got sicker a wee bit later, he said, you know that book we've been going to do? And I said, you've been going to do, you mean? He said, well, yeah, I can't. And with a laugh, the good thing about this is you've got to do it. <laughs> and English wasn't my strength. Languages aren't my strength. And in fact, when I went teaching, my English teacher said, if they accept, accept people like him as teachers, there's no hope for the English language. So <laughs> it was a bit of a challenge for me taking on doing the book that he was going to do. My co-papa was really that I keep it as much as if Hirini had written it as possible. I didn't manage to get it done before he left us, but I think I I kept his voice in there rather than my own as much as possible. And really that was still the kaupapa of the book, to have a, a basis of things to go back to and look at and understand the kaupapa, the whakapapa of the instruments. Yeah, I hope he's, he seems to be happy with it because it's still being printed this many years later. Yeah, yeah. What did I remember you saying? Oh, he said, keep it simple and affordable or something like that. The other thing he said, uh, no bullshit, which was his way of saying, don't go into the spirit side of the instruments. Yeah. Because that is something that is more personal and I overheard him saying to somebody who asked him why he did the, all his work on the revival and he said, I do it first for myself and Tuhoi, then I do it for Māori people and then for the world. So he had his priorities. Māori people who've grown up with it come to the spiritual aspect of the instruments We've also found that the instruments convey that too, the sounds that they do make. People from all around the world are moved by the sounds and by the spirit voices that come through the sound. So I think that's because the mouthpiece is so simple, mm-hmm. in all except the pumoto model, <laughs> yeah. that the voice, the person behind it must come through. So I make an instrument for one person Somebody else picks it up and you'd swear it's a different instrument because our lips and tongue are what generate the effect on the sound, whereas with most modern instruments, it's a fixed hole so that everybody can get the same sound and play together. Mm-hmm. Where These were mostly only played on their own. There's only about one instrument, the pakuru, that I've seen references to being played by a hundred people or so at once and they're very quiet instruments but with a hundred people playing them the sound was just said to to be like waves washing over you What are your aspirations for Taumapuro and how can this be strengthened with people within the culture in the broader sense? Some people will take it to their own iwi. Like Hirini said, some people will take it to their motu and some people will take it to te ao kato. Mm-hmm. So long as the basis is strong and whoever's interested gets their own people interested, then what develops? Yeah. That's the most important, I think, uh, aspect to develop and the others will follow naturally from that. Yep. The instruments also have their own voices, their own way of speaking. I made a small collection for the British Museum Education Department and went back to to see the people a few years later and see if they needed any you know, repairs or anything 
they're all in great shape, but they said, you know, we've got a huge selection of musical instruments from around the world to take when we go round. But we found that what people are most excited by are the Taonga Portal. They're the only group of instruments we take with us everywhere. So, yeah, they've got their own voice and they spread the message too, don't they? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember playing to young children as well when the kids were little, the junior school. We went to this wānanga out in um, Kafia and Makatū Marae. And they had all the junior kids in this one um, sleeping quarters and... Man, and they were just making noise and noise. All the teachers trying to shut them up and their men anymore. Um, we thought, oh, we'll just try this, you know. So I started playing the Tonga Pūoro. She started sort of doing a little bit of chanting and we just kept playing. And then, you know, sort of like 40 minutes later, the kids were sort of all asleep, you know. And um, all the teachers were looking at us like, wow, how'd you do that? But it's just, you know, yeah, it was just captivating and uh, mesmerising that they all... Went to sleep. It's great. Yeah, yeah. How have you found being Pākehā involved in Tonga Pūro? How has that been received over your lifetime with Tonga Pūro? Because it's a dedicated lifetime to this craft, you know, that's not necessarily part of your culture, but it is your culture, if you know what I mean, because you've dedicated so much of your life to it. And this is a question that is asked a lot of time, and there's always conversations around that in Te Ao Māori about, um, you know, non-Māori being involved in kaupapa. You know, it's just real life conversations, you know. I have been amazed and am amazed at how little it has been brought to me personally. Only about one case, I suppose, where somebody challenged me. But I'm sure that yourself and Hedony and others that support what I do and what Richard does have shielded us from quite a bit of that, but I don't know. And so... I suppose, to me, it doesn't happen. (laughs) Uh, Fairly early on, uh, we went down to Kaikoura before the marae was up, and Sir Tiffany invited me to come down because I'd been working with him since the late 70s, and he used his student teachers to come out and uh, help our school, who were trying to get as much Māori into the programme as we could. And we had met some great people through that. But I got a ride down with the dock people from Nelson down to Kaikoura. And people were quite standoffish. You know, they obviously didn't know me or anything, but it wasn't what I was used to (laughs) going on to a marae. Not that I'd been on all that many at that stage. Suddenly it all changed. And one of the locals had gone up to Tiffany and said, Who's this Pākehā come that's there? We've never met him before. Oh, he's not a Pākehā. He's our mōkai. (laughs) When I got home, I looked up in the dictionary and, okay, he's a a slave, but he's an honoured slave. Yeah, and ever since then, I suppose, word got round. (laughs) And uh, I felt, I just thought, I can handle this being a a mōkai because it changes a whole lot of that aspect. No, that's good. What are your dreams and aspirations for yourself uh, going forward and for, you know, listeners out there, people out there engaged in Te Aupuru? One of the most exciting things is getting feedback. And I know personally being involved in this has completely changed my life and the way I look at the world, being able to understand the the traditional Māori way of of looking at the world too. It's like I started off with the story of they're all people and people are all different. So when I see how much it's enriched me, then I think other people are being so enriched too when I hear their stories back. And that gives a, a most amazing motivation 
to be so enthusiastic about carrying on with it because, as you've mentioned before too, it's part of my life. It's a huge part of my life. It's one that I completely believe in as being able to do good. That's like the tamoko on your arms. There is a a real strong uh, reason behind the way you do your patterning. And there's a real strong thing that's behind everything of being Māori, uh, which in uh, Tafio's Whakapapa uh, was explained that creation only really started when uh, Hani and Puna came together at Te Ahurewa. They were two opposites. In today's world, people just accept that from the yin and yang. Mm-hmm. So the same concept is the basis of creation, and you see it following through with the ages of uh, the creation being Tao and Paul, the dark and the light, completely opposites but complementing each other when they come together. And uh, that's the basic concept that's behind uh, your tamako. It's uh, the light and the dark. In fact, also I see you've got colours, and so the greens complementing the reds. And so you've, you've got to find that balance in your life in every way you can. But it's the basis of all creation because all creation has that in it. It's quite natural to look at everything as being a person. And so the tree, a tree person, the bird, a bird person, uh, the kiwi, a kiwi person, and they're all so similar. And so in my carving, I take some of the old patterns and I, I really quite like using because with the tools I use, it's nice to do and it's also one that I could see in the carvings in Murahiku. And it's the unaunahi, the fish scale design. Now, if you extrapolate that into just what I said, I thought about it one day, I was having to do um, leaves on a tree. Oh, leaves are just tree scales, aren't they? Or the scales on a butterfly's wing. Uh, It can apply to so many different things. Hmm. And uh, all these aspects that make so... Well, at high school, I thought science was the answer to everything in the world. Uh, And so logic, of course, was important to me. And the logic is within that that whole whakapapa of the world. You know, it's wonderful. And when I see stories like I do in the south of the uh, creation when Rangi and Papa came together, one coming from Tao, one coming from Tepal, you know, Papa coming from Tepal and Rangi coming from Tao, Tangaroa was the uh, the uncle of Rangi and he was the first partner of Papa. Now, if you go up into the mountains, you can see seashells in the rocks. So <laughs> that mm. just verifies that story. And the logic that I see within the Māori philosophy it's just exciting because it's not the logic I grew up with, but I can't escape it. I can't get out of it. Mm. The mythology is really just the philosophy put into story forms so that young people can grow up with it. You don't have to teach it, but then they grow up with it as a natural part of them. Yeah. Any last words? Uh, last words? <laughs> I know that was a, sort of a last word, but there was a couple of things wrapped up in that question. But just the, the last words are really an awesome thank you to so many Māori people who have taken me in and treated me in a, a way that it makes it, what else could I do but continue to be Uh, excited by and enriched by all that I've been saying that I've got from the people who have so willingly given 
and it isn't given easily because they have been let down so many times in the, in the past that for them to open up the way they have to me and not just open up but encourage and add to, to my knowledge to make make it better, that is the most amazing personal thing to me that has happened in my life with Tonga Poro. Ka mihi nui, kia koutou. Kia ora. Yeah, well, um, yeah, thanks for your uh, many years contribution to Tao Poro. Yeah, you know, alongside, you know, Hedini, Richard, you know, I always sort of used Rangi Nui Keef as well. He's still kicking yeah. down there and um, Kahununu and stuff. And, you know, um, people like um, Bruce Gregory, you know, which we talked about. Yeah. I've talked about him recently. Rangi Hadley. Yeah, just all those people that have contributed. Joe Malcolm. Yeah, Joe Malcolm. And, um, you know, even Milton Hohaya, mm. he was quite prolific, you know, in his use yep. and knowledge mm. of Tonga Pool. He wasn't necessarily out there with it, but he used it, you know, regularly in what he did and his um, down there in Taranaki. And just, yeah, you know, thank yous for, um, yeah, taking up the, the manuka, taking up the challenge to, yeah, help revive, um, you know, kia Hau manu ngai te te aupuro ma tato ano irungi te mato te fenua so yeah which has helped me and uh, my counterparts uh, you know friends and whanau to enjoy and embrace this tonga tonga puro kia ora kia fakatutu ki pai to tonga nei kōrero i te rangi nei e mo hau manu collective. Manu Fanui, Kotoi Timodi, Timodi Oho, Timodi Arangi, Timodi Papa, Timodi Ayo Te Hotapue, Kotoi Timodi, Timodi Ongatua, Kotoi Timodi, Timodi Ongatupuna, Kotoi Timodi, Timodi Ote Tangata, Katoi Toi, Ta Timodi, Huye, Uye, Taiki. Kyoda. Kote piko te mahuri ko ia te tipu a te rakaui Herita tangata